first family, sometimes we underestimate the damage one bite of sin can do, don't we? In fact, I'd like to make this statement to you and have you actually say it with me. Never underestimate the damage one bite of sin can do to the bushel of fruit in the orchard of God. I was thinking this week about King David when he took an unauthorized census of the nation of Israel. It seemed like just a small logistical mistake, but it was in direct violation of God's commandment. And as a result of David's sin, 70,000 people perished. Truly, we should never underestimate the damage one bite of sin can do. I thought about Jonah, who on his uh, way, on his run from God, shall we say, down to Joppa and down to the ship, he almost cost an entire crew their life. The storm was raging, the ship was about to go, and only on his deathbed confession, shall we call it, did they take Jonah and toss him overboard and save their own necks. He was underestimating the damage one bite of sin can do, wasn't he? And who can forget Adam, who in a moment of sinful weakness, he and Eve gave in to this forbidden fruit, whatever it might have been, this eating from this tree that was forbidden. God said, don't eat of it. And they did. And now, for thousands of years, we are born with a sin nature. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate that, right? Hey, guess what? Never underestimate the damage one bite of sin can do. Such as the case with a man named Ken. At least that's what we'll call him. He was a pastor and Ken um, had found himself more and more pulled toward pornography. and He had been checking out different images and websites and storing them on his personal laptop. He also used this laptop to coordinate with his Sunday presentations. And One Sunday after a unifying time of worship and the congregation seemed very prepared for his delivery of the message. He took his remote to click on his first slide, and instead of that opening slide describing where he might be preaching from, a vile, pornographic picture appeared to the whole congregation. And yes, Ken's wife and family was there. What started out to be a very celebratory service ended up in tears and shame. As many of the flock including his family, were now publicly affected by his apparently private sin. You see, folks, too often we underestimate the damage one bite of sin can have, don't we? Joshua 7 screams this at our church. And it hollers from the mountaintop, Don't underestimate the damage sin can do. Will you turn there? Joshua chapter 7. Let's see an Old Testament story of the effects of sin. And it's damaging consequences not only to one man, but also to those around us. I want to warn you as you find Joshua 7. This is a somber chapter. 
You'll find that as we delve into this for a few minutes, it will seem somewhat sober in this room. But it's my intent not to leave us there, but to find the good news in the end. So hang with me, would you, First Family? Joshua chapter 7 is the story of a man named Achan, whose name actually means trouble. Somewhat of a self-fulfilling life, wouldn't you say, Achan? How he brought trouble upon himself, his family, the nation of Israel. Achan was the man who committed a trespass against the Lord. As a result, not only did his family suffer ruin, 36 of his fellow soldiers died, the nation of Israel suffered their only defeat in their entire promised land military campaign, all because of one man named Achan, who sinned against the Lord, and it's described for us in Joshua chapter 7. Now, this is a lengthy portion of Scripture. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I would encourage you, though, as I highlight some principles and observations, that you read the verses on the screen behind me. That, And I think you can do two things at one time, kind of read and listen at the same time. Even in your lighthouses and small groups this week, read this entire portion of Scripture. I'll pick out a few verses, and I'll show you the flow of the passage. But it would be, very, I think, very effective, even as families, to, to just read these 26 verses at one sitting. And you'll get a sense of the sobriety of this situation. You say, Todd, what really happened? Well, the very first verse of chapter 7 explains what happened. Achan committed a sin that was a violation against God. Look at Joshua 7.1. The Bible says that the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. And that's speaking there of all that was in Jericho after they conquered it. Remember? Well, apparently they, they wanted to take anything. But Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, he did exactly that. He took some of them. Now, Jericho was the first fruits to God. All of its belongings belonged to God, but he took some. And because of this, look what the last part of verse 1 said. The Lord's anger burned against Israel. One of my first observations is to share this with you, that sin violates God. In fact, I'd ask you to underline two words in 7.1. The words acted unfaithfully. Because in the Hebrew language, they bring a sense of, of, watch this now, they bring a sense of immorality into focus. And that is what sin uh, is. That's what happens when we sin. We choose something or someone else over Jesus. It's spiritual immorality. Remember, church, God has chosen us. We are His bride. Amen? I mean, we are His prized possession. He's waiting for the day when He will call us to heaven and we'll celebrate with Him the marriage supper of the Lamb. And while we're in waiting, the audacity of those He would call His bride to choose substitutes, it's spiritual immorality. And I pray that that hits you deeply and intensely because it needs to. Because sin is more than just a mistake. I didn't just hurt my friend. I didn't just say a bad word. We violated God. Are you with me, church? And much of the curse of the 21st century American church is that we have a strange callousness to this thing called sin. Things around us, words near us, relationships, things that happen, they just don't bother us anymore. And we laugh at folks who seem too sensitive. 
We kind of snicker when they seem a little strange. They're a little strict. They seem kind of weird. The truth is, we've lost uh, a sense of God's holiness. And we're becoming way too accustomed to what is actually a violation of, of God's commands. You see, sin is far more than just acting in a bad way that affects others. It is first and foremost a violation of a vertical relationship. Are you with me, church? And sometimes we start horizontally first. Oh, I messed up and so so-and-so thought this. Or I messed up and so it hurt that person. That's not, that's not wrong because sin has an outward effect. And we'll see that in a minute. But guess what? Long before it has that effect, it has a vertical effect. It violates God. It's spiritual immorality. In this very first verse, none of the children of Israel even knew what was going on. Did you know that? Those things were hidden in His tent. And yet, God's anger burned. It was an act of unfaithfulness. I say to you, before anyone knows about your sin, God knows. He knows now what you've been hiding for the last three months, the last three years. He knows now what you did last night that you think no one will ever find out. He knows. And you may be sitting there kind of smug thinking, man, I'm going to get out of this one good. You know what? God already knows. And you have violated this vertical relationship first and foremost. One of the problems that we as a church, as, as, as a church in America are experiencing is, that doesn't bother us anymore. You ever notice that? It's like things begin to be a big deal when other people find out. But i got to tell you something, God already knows. And that alone ought to bring us to our knees. That alone ought to cause us to repent. Seek the face of God in forgiveness. Even if nobody knows. Because sin violates God. But let's personalize this, shall we? And that's a principle that's true, but let's make it personal. The real truth is this. My sin violates God. There's another observation I want to share with you. In in some of the verses there in Joshua chapter 7, about verses 2 through about verse 10, we see that sin affects others. As you read through these verses, like for instance, verse 5, we find that about 36 men were, 36 men were killed. Fellow soldiers of, of Achan. As we read verses 6 or about verse 9, we find that Joshua and the elders took time out. They were affected by the sin. They took time out to uh, really experience a, a sense of spiritual solemnness. They sought the Lord. You even find for, the, for one of the singular times in Joshua's life, you find him almost speaking like the children of Israel in the wilderness. You ought to read some of those verses in there. It's like a different kind of Joshua. He's really affected by the sin. He's not sure what's happening, what's going on, what's with this God. As you get to the end of Joshua 7, you'll find that Achan's family was destroyed. They were stoned and then burned. All of those people were affected because of this one man's sin. And it helps me realize something. Sin affects other people, doesn't it? Now, we know that all of our lives have an effect on people. And we like that when it's a good thing, don't we? This past week, I was at my daughter's soccer practice. Excuse me, basketball practice. I'm standing on the end wall, talking to some of the dads there. And uh, one of the dads was coming about after this practice. I've got to run over to another practice and pick another daughter up. And I said, yeah, I've got to go pick one of my daughters up from another practice. And he said, I get my son to a new practice. I said, oh, where's your son playing? He said, oh, my son's in this new Ankeny basketball league. I said, oh, yeah, I heard about that new one starting kind of a, 
an AAU type of team for the city so they can kind of get more guys involved, kind of feed the high school. And he said, yeah. He said, and you know who's coaching it, don't you? I said, yeah. He goes, Andrew Farmer. So I was like, oh, yeah. He said, you know, Andrew, I mean, it's like I'm talking to, about a celebrity to this guy, you know. And he goes, Andrew. I'm like, yeah, I'm Andrew's pastor. He said, oh, you're Andrew Farmer's pastor. He couldn't believe this, you know. He's so excited. that I said, and I started kind of puffing up a little bit, you know, because I'm Andrew's pastor. And so I said, you know, I've actually played ball with Andrew several times. And uh, he's really good, and we're talking. And, I mean, Andrew's life and his past experience at Ankeny High and how all those basketball things he's done and baseball things, I don't know who this guy was, but I was a better person. I was affected in a positive way because of Andrew's life. We like it when it happens on a good front, don't we? Can I say something to you? The same principle is true negatively. How you live and conduct yourself and what you do affects people around you. It's true in Joshua 7. It's true in 2007. It's a principle that we need to really grasp that my sin affects others. Hey guys, what you do when you think no one's looking affects your wife and your kids. Hey, single guys, what you do when you think no one's looking affects who will one day be your wife. Your character and how you handle your money. Hey ladies, the, the way you use your tongue and the way you talk, and we can go down a list of things for men and women, all of us. How we conduct ourselves, no man's an island, no woman's an island. We affect other people. I encourage you to think about the body before you sin. Amen? Think about the people you're connected to, your small group, your lighthouse, your family. Because this principle holds true. And we don't break principles. Principles break us. Are you with me? Sin affects others. I noticed another observation here in Joshua 7. Joshua obviously was pleading with the Lord about what to do. Here, the Lord's anger is burning against Israel. It affects a lot of people. In verse 10, the Lord says to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. And then for the next several verses, all the way through about verse 20 or so, 21, we see Joshua dealing with this sin based on the Lord's commands. It teaches me a simple observation. Sin demands action. Now, notice in the text here the action that Joshua took. I'll just take you to a few verses that are selected here to give you the point. Look about verse 12. Joshua had to take action because God said, I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. So Joshua's clear-cut goal was to destroy that sinful thing among them. That sounds very harsh. It sounds almost incomprehensible. But that was God's order. Otherwise, the people were, were not in a place of God's blessing. Look at the end of verse 13. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. He didn't say until you put up with it. Are you with me? Remove the sin. And so here's how Joshua did that. The Bible seems to indicate that they brought these people tribe by tribe. 
and then clan by clan, and then family by family. And somehow, in that, I'll call it a national lineup, you can almost see the in your mind's eye the glass, and here, here's Joshua on this side of the glass, you know, kind of doing the finger at people, trying to make sure he points out who the right person is and who sinned. And I don't know if God told Joshua, then Joshua selected him. I don't know if, if God actually told the whole crowd. We don't know. But there's this, this kind of processional, this national lineup. They found the tribe of Judah. They found the right clan. They found the right family. And it comes down to where they found the right man. Now here's what I think is interesting. In Joshua's dealing with this sin, you don't find Achan ever fessing up prior to being cornered by Joshua, do you? Now, I'll be frank with you. If I'm in this, and I'll use the phrase national lineup again, if I'm in this filtering process where I can sense, wow, all the tribes are here and they filter down to my tribe and all the clans are here and they're down to my clan. If I know that I'm kind of the guilty party at some point, I think I might just say, hey, hey, stop the, stop the process, it's me. You kind of maybe want to seek forgiveness early on. Are you with me? If you know it's kind of coming down on your neck. But I think it's very odd that Achan waited until the very last minute, didn't he? In fact, he waited until verse 20, excuse me, verse 19, when Joshua, with a finger perhaps to Achan's chest, that's a little added in there, by the way, you won't find that in the verse. He seems to corner him and he says, Hey, we've been through this whole process. We've come down to one man, Achan. Tell the truth. Don't hide it. Give glory to God. And only then does Achan, in verse 20, respond, It is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And they're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. There it is. The admittance of what happened. Now, we don't know if that was a confession or just an admittance. We don't know. We have good folks in this church who think that was Aiken's confession. He was apologetic and repentant. There are other folks who think it was just kind of his statement of, hey, you caught me, this is what I did, you got me. Way to go, Joshua. I don't know which it is, I know kind of where I lean. I tend to think this is more of an admittance. And I base it on mainly the fact that, it, that Achan waited till the very end. I tend to think a truly repentant heart is not going to wait till they get caught. But probably if they sense the hammer coming down slowly... He's going to jump out of line and say, Hey, wait, stop! Don't let everybody go through this! It's me! I'm the problem! second thing is, I find that God's judgment did not stop after this admittance. The judgment is still carried forth in full to Achan and his entire family. I tend to think this is more of a, a blatant type of in-your-face from Achan. Like, okay, yeah, you're right, Joshua. You got me. Here's what I did. I saw in the plunder the Babylonian robe. I saw the gold, the wedges of... Uh, go, I, t- I took it and I covered it. Yeah, that was me. You nailed me. That's kind of what I sense in the verse. It's an opinion there. That was the result of Joshua taking action. Listen very carefully. That seems really crass and harsh. And like, wow, that's pretty tense. But that's what it takes to deal with sin. It sometimes takes a finger in the chest. An eye-to-eye conversation. It takes a bold stance. It takes, it takes the prospect of severe consequences for some people 
to turn from their sin. Are you listening to me, First Family? I know this is maybe not the most PC kind of talk you're expecting. But let me be very clear with you. Sin demands action. And this is seen throughout the Scriptures. And, and much of the church in this century is dropping the ball in this. We are way too passive in letting our brothers and sisters persist in sinful lifestyles without an arm of compassion to say, Hey, you're killing yourself, man! And, and, and finding a way with boldness and compassion to be the body of Christ. Let me remind you, in 1 Corinthians, Paul encouraged the church there to expel an immoral member. It was a man, and he's unnamed. But Paul said very clearly, get rid of the immoral member in your body. That didn't sound real loving. How can that be Christ-like? You know what? That's another whole message. I'm just telling you, though, the Bible is very clear. Deliberate, ongoing sin takes action. Are you with me? It's called church discipline. I remind you also in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira came forward and they, they, they said they gave a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of money, and they didn't really give it. In front of the whole church, they were both struck dead. At the end of Acts 5, the Bible says this, that the whole church was seized with fear. You know what's lacking in a lot of churches in America? Fear. It's like a big party, man. Everybody can do what they want to do and just feel good when you come on Sunday. Excuse me. There's a holy God who has laid out His Word for us about how we ought to live. And sometimes when, the, when, when that Word's not being obeyed, we need to get out of our passive modes and, and fearful modes and in a kind but compassionate way deal with sin. Now, I think that starts, first of all, with every man dealing with himself and if they're married with his family first. Amen. What what if God said to you what He said to Joshua? Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Remember last week we said the best place to be when you're in spiritual warfare is on your knees? There are times when the warfare is clear and the action plan is laid out that you need to get off your knees and pray and and get to fighting physically, so to speak. Not necessarily like this. But you know what I'm saying. Deal with stuff. A lot of men are way too scared of their wives. Way too fearful of consequences to ever bring up a hard subject. And so they live in misery, and they walk on eggshells, and they never deal with root causes. And sin continues to bring families to to major dysfunction. Hey, you know what, men? Stand up. In a kind, compassionate, but clear way, be the man God wants you to be in your family. See, sin demands action. It may be that way in relationships. It could be that way in your own heart. But sin demands action. Your sin demands action. My sin demands action. It's a personal thing here. Quit looking the other way. The reason that sin demands action is because often when sin is exposed, it's just simply the visible side of what's been going on deep inside. It's just the outer expression of what's been kind of in the womb for a while, shall we say. That's another observation I learned in Joshua. Look with me, the end of Joshua, about verse 21, let's say, in Achan's confession. The action has happened. They're going to take the family out, of course. They're going to stone them and burn them. And it's in this confession that, that Achan shows us something very interesting about how we sin. Look what he says. He says, I saw these things in there. 
this beautiful robe, this money, and I what? I coveted them, and then I took them. Notice the order there. Inner covetousness, then outward thievery. Sin always starts inside. You listening, church? Sin always starts right here. Which is why for the last several weeks, especially since we began, Joshua, we have been encouraging you to win the battle of the heart. Concentrate on the inner victories. For that's really where spiritual victory is found. It's not in pretense on the outside or acting like things are okay. But when we are willing to deal with what's going on in the heart, win the battle inside. And that's where victory is found. Achan did not win that battle. He gave in to covetousness and the outer action of that was stealing. What's inside always comes out, church. And that's why I want to encourage you to deal with sin. Watch this. At its root, not at its fruit. You hearing me? Especially with children. Parents, listen up. I'm no guru. I'm in the, the years just like you are. I mean, it's just tough, isn't it? But I'm telling you, a good principle of parenting is this. Deal with sin at the root. And if you're sensing different things, and if you're working on consequences, and you're just trying to deal with the fruit, and that may have its place, but at some point you've got to be the parent that you know that child needs. And you've got to dig away and peel back the chest and say, hey, what's going on inside? Why is this stuff happening? That's painful. It's hard. But it's what parents do. That's the best way to deal with sin. At the root, not the fruit. One thing Achan didn't do was deal with the sin in his heart. In fact, James says for us in James chapter 1, he lays this out for us very clearly. He says, sin comes from lustful desires. And then, when they are evidenced, that's when we sin. You know, when you see someone sin publicly, it's really just, watch this word, now watch me here. It's just the birth of a lust that's been in the womb of their life for a long time. That's what James 1 says. I encourage you to, to deal with sin, not just in its externals, but man, in the heart where it can sometimes take root and lead us astray. Can I share something with you about this covetousness that Achan dealt with? Just an interesting perspective here. The road that he saw there and the money. Babylonia was a very popular and probably the center of that Mesopotamian area. In other words, if you were from Babylonia, and this robe here mentioned, it indicates a long type of robe that might have been worn by someone very distinguished. It probably was like having the best of the best. And when Achan saw that, he probably thought this to himself. This is some speculation, but follow me here. He probably thought, man, if I had that, people would think I something. If I wore that around, if I had that kind of money, man, people wouldn't consider me old Aiken, whose name means trouble. they think I was hot stuff. In other words, Aiken's insecurity led him to a place of sin. You see, he didn't deal with the heart. And often, our discontent, our insecurity about the way God's made us and who we honestly are before the Lord, sometimes we're insecure with that. It leads us to places where we sin. Are you with me? That's why Paul said, I want you to be content in whatever your state. It doesn't matter what you have or don't have. Amen, church? It doesn't matter what you drive or don't drive. What matters is what God thinks about you. And God loves you. He made you in His image. And sin takes us away from that. At the moment we think, man, that's what I need. 
I'd feel good if I did that. I'd, have, I'd look important if I had that. The truth is that's the deception. That's false. And we believe false things and then we act in wrong ways and we find ourselves removed from really what God actually wants for us. Watch out for the deception of the evil one. Instead, look towards the Lord and say, God, help me to find my security and contentment in You. To know that, that when I trust You and am content with Your plan for my life, that's far better than sin's plan for my life. It may be good for a season. Remember Moses? Moses says, the Bible says that Moses refused the pleasures of Egypt. I'm sure he looked out and thought, man, if I stay in Egypt, if I become second in command, if I become like... The next Pharaoh to be, wow, that'll be awesome. They'll think I'm high and mighty. That'll be a great position of power. But he rejected that and he chose instead to suffer affliction with the people of God. It's an awesome example of, of saying no to sinful's to, to sin's deceitful look and saying yes to the plan of God. That's the way to find victory. Sin takes action and sin starts in the hearts. You've got to really deal with this thing inside as it goes pump, 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 pump. Are you with me? It's deceitfully wicked and desperately wicked. Who can know it? But that's what you've got to deal with. Now those four things can sound like some bad news, can't they? Wow, Todd. Man, I feel encouraged today. You've not told us but one funny story. I've only smiled a couple of times and then you're hitting me hard. I feel like I'm going to crawl out of first family today. Let me share one more observation that's the best news of all. And I love the way the, the writer of this book, Joshua, really lays this out for us. Look at Joshua chapter 7, verse 26. And if you think you feel pretty somber, imagine if you were part of the Israelites that day. They were part of a national lineup. They actually saw one of their, their members stoned, his family stoned and burned. Man, it makes ours look trivial right now. It was a somber, sober day for the nation. Because of one man's sin. But look at this. The Bible says in Joshua 7.26, The Lord, then the Lord, turned from His fierce anger. Do you see that? Don't underline that phrase in your Bible. What caused God to do in this verse what it said in verse 1 actually happened? In verse 1, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. But now... The Lord's anger is turning. What happened? Well, Joshua did what God said. He removed from the camp the sinful thing. Listen very carefully, church. There is a a really neat typology in the story. Just as in Israel's day, they had to remove the sinful thing to satisfy God's wrath. So it is today. Now watch this very carefully. Someone has to pay for sin, right? Some, something or somebody has to pay the price for sin. Guess what? Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin. And I've got good news for you. God's not mad at you. Well, Todd, I was doing the thing for the first 30 minutes. He's mad at me, man. Well, you're talking. I don't know. Maybe I kind of set you up a little bit. The truth is, let me just tell you this. Jesus Christ actually is the sin offering. 
that was presented to God on Golgotha. Remember Golgotha? And by the way, Golgotha called the place of the school was considered outside the camp. It was not part of Jerusalem. It was outside the camp. And in the Old Testament Levitical system, they had a sin offering. They'd bring to God for the trespasses of people. When that offering was done, they would take that and remove it to the outside of the city. The New Testament is the clear example of, of this actually taking place. Who's going to satisfy God's wrath? Who's going to make it so that people can be justified? Jesus did. And He hung on the cross. And he, he bore our sins. And for three hours, He was separated from His Father so that at the end of those hours of darkness, He could say, it is finished. And now God, when He sees Pat, Danae, Ed, Dale, Dennis, all around the room, to those who believe and are behind the cross in Jesus, He looks and He says, You know what? You're justified. My wrath is satisfied. Hallelujah, church. Amen. And God's not mad at you. And let me say it like this, because He took His anger out on His Son. So you can pretend to not cry and be moved when the story of God's amazing grace comes into play. But it sure moves me because an almighty, holy God chose to let His only Son bear all the penalty of my sin so that a rotten, stinking, used to be red-headed, now bald-headed, most just guy with tons of problems and a smart mouth and all these kind of things as a kid and they still stick with you this day. All these things that dog my feet and cause me problems. All the ways my humanity sometimes is way too evident. So that God could say to that kind of man, since you believe, I consider you justified because my son bore your sin. I don't deserve that kind of love, people. I don't deserve that kind of grace. But I praise God and give hallelujahs for His grace. You know, one of my favorite verses describes this whole process. It's in 2 Corinthians. I want to ask you to read this verse with me because this is when Christ became our sin. This is when God removed the sin so that we're not bearing it. Jesus bore it all. Look at this verse. Read it with me, shall we? God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's a completely unfair exchange. You don't deserve any hint of that. But God is so awesome. He is so gracious and merciful. And somehow, when His holiness was met, He then extended His grace to all of us who were unholy. Now, I want to tell you something. This verse is incredibly strong because it doesn't mean that Jesus bore our sins to the cross and like a, like a Santa Claus would carry a bag of toys. Sometimes we picture Christ carrying our sins to the cross. And I've heard that used. That's actually a very untheological depiction. The Bible clearly says that Jesus Christ became sin for us. Listen very carefully, church. It is theologically accurate to say this, that in three hours on the cross, when God turned His back on His Son because He couldn't look at sin, Jesus Christ became sin. He was sin, the sin offering. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? Someone who is God, deity wrapped in flesh, holy for three hours, becoming sin. But that's what it took so that you and I could be saved.
Because your eternal destiny was at stake. And then people wonder why we gather every week to celebrate the Lord. Man, I'll tell you why. He became sin for us. The Father turned away from the Son. Because of that whole exchange, we can be saved. Hallelujah. Praise to the Almighty God. I hope that helps your heart to well up in, in gratefulness for how Jesus Christ has dealt with our sin. See, that's the last principle. Sin doesn't have to be the end. Yes, it is bad news. It affects others. It's a violation against God. It starts inside and it demands action. Those are all true, but guess what? Your sin doesn't have to be the end of you. God's grace is greater than your sin. Praise His name. You say, Todd, how, how does God deal with sin? Well, I just explained to you, He deals with it through Jesus. Let me show you some verses as we close that just kind of laid this out for us. Can I look at 1 John real quickly? 1 John chapter 2, because these verses have just really been on my heart for a few weeks. I thought about this chapter, because I'll be honest with you, this is a difficult text. I'm not looking forward to laying out a whole thing on sin for you guys. You feel like you know, you're leaving. Man, the pastor berates us today, beat us down. That's never my goal. We want to uplift the grace of God and His character. But grace isn't grace until you realize what is greater than. Amen? It's our sin. Hallelujah. That God is bigger than all that. And He's able to show His grace in us through His Son. First John really was in, has been a chapter. First uh, John 1 has been a chapter with some verses that has helped me kind of process Joshua 7. 1 John chapter 1, look at a select few verses here, okay? And let me show you how Jesus has been and is the answer to the sin problem. Look at verse 5. This is the message we've heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In other words, He's holy. There's no sin in God at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet we walk in the darkness, then we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light... As He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Look at the next phrase. And the blood of what? The blood of whom? Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So you're here this morning thinking, man, Todd's picking on folks who are doing some bad stuff. No, I'm not. I'm picking on all of us who were born with bad stuff. You can say amen there if you like. Are you with me? I'm not pointing a finger at somebody because you did a sin that was worse in man's eyes and so and so. I'm not here to... That's not why I'm here. I'm here to show you something. We all are sinners. We all were born defective. There's nothing you can do about it. And for you to approach a holy God in your natural state is useless and a waste of time. You'll never get there. But through Jesus, if we just be honest about our sin, walk in the light... And say, Jesus, I need your blood to cover my sin. His blood will wash our sins away. And we'll be, as the prophet said, whiter than snow. In fact, look at chapter 2. I'll just skip down to this verse. Chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. It's not the goal of God to give you like an out, so to speak. Hey, listen, we're all at sin. We just might as well admit it and be honest because that's the only way to deal with it. And Jesus Christ can help us through it and He'll forgive us. I mean, that's true, but it's not like that's an out. Then just go sin all you want. The truth is, He says here, I don't want you to sin, but if anybody does sin... It's like, here's the goal, but here's the reality. Are you with me? The ideal and then the ordeal again. 
anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Hallelujah, church. See that? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, all, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, when Jesus Christ bore our sins, He removed it. So God's not mad at you. And every day, when we see God's standard of holiness, and then that heart that's so sensitive, says, oh God, I, I committed spiritual immorality. That's not what I'm after. Then the, the son says to the father, hey, uh, Dad, I bought him with my blood. And he believes in forgiveness, okay? He speaks in our defense. And the blood of Christ washes us and cleanses us. Jesus is the answer to our sin problem, not only at salvation, but continuously in our sanctification. Amen. And churches and individuals that try to eliminate Jesus and His cross from the message of the church, man, that's like asking for hopelessness. I mean, what, what hope is there in a message without Christ and His cross? Someone said to me one time, man, you have a bloody faith. And I said, hallelujah. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And it is only in the cross and the forgiveness offered by Jesus that we can even gather every Sunday and sing, How great is our God! Church, God's holiness demanded satisfaction and that was met in Jesus. And now, you can live in the grace and freedom offered in Jesus Christ. His forgiveness is truly freeing. Amen? The key is to realize that we need that forgiveness. In fact, if you were to say, well, I don't need that, that's the first sign you need it. Are you with me? That's kind of what John says here. And that was the breakthrough for Ken. Remember Ken? The pastor who shared his whole laptop one Sunday morning? Well, that service, of course, was very traumatic. And as the people wondered and gasped, and as the elders immediately moved forward and began to pray fervently, Ken broke down and began to cry and began to confess his sins. That's right, in front of the whole church right there. And he should have. The Bible says that elders that sin before all should be rebuked before all. The elders gathered around Ken and they removed him from his place of ministry temporarily. They began to put Ken on a path of restoration. I quote to you from an article that Ken wrote about that day in his life. He says, quote, What was the worst thing turned out to be the best thing that could have happened to me. Because today I am free from the bondage and burden of pornography. That's what confession did for me. And you see, it's in our human nature when sin is confronted, when a pastor brings it to our attention, or the, or the Holy Spirit actually peels back our chest cavity and shines a light in the basement of our life. It's our human nature to say, hey, hey, don't bother me now. It's in our psyche to try to run from that. Just ask Jonah. But it's in our best interest to see 
that Jesus Christ calls us to confession because in confession we find restoration. What are you doing with your sin this morning? Well, I'm trying to keep it hidden. Bad idea. Well, I'm, 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 I'm trying to work the best I can on it. Not a very good idea. Have you taken your sin to Jesus in confession so that He can forgive you and put you on a road to restoration? If you don't, you're headed for a dead end. That's the only place sin leads. In fact, James said it, remember? Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. But as Ken wrote in his article, he said his dead end was a wonderful U-turn. And he got to the end, and that terrible Sunday was the day he repented and said, God, I agree with you about my sin. And his U-turn ended up being the best thing for him and his flock. Ken now pastors. God has restored his ministry. Hallelujah for the grace of God. But it didn't come prior to confession. And this morning, I just want to ask you, in an authentic, humble way. Are you letting Jesus deal with your sin? Are you letting Jesus deal with your sin? Say, Todd, how would I do that? What's the first step? Confess. Just say, God, I agree with you. You see, that's what the word confess means, you know. Confess means to say the same thing. And it's the first step toward a breakthrough when we say, God... You're right about sin and I'm not. And and I confess to you, I want to be right. That's the very first step. This morning, will you let Jesus deal with your sin? It may be a specific sin for someone here that you've been hiding for some time. It could be just a, a general sinful lifestyle that... Maybe you as an unbeliever have lived for years and you've never thought twice about what that means. But this morning you're like, you know what? If the end of my sin is death in hell, how do I get out of that? If you're saying Jesus Christ is my answer, I want to believe. We can help you with that. Just pray and ask the Lord to forgive you based on the cross of Christ. Say, Lord, I believe Jesus Christ is the only way and His death forgives my sins. It may be from a specific sin to a lifestyle, but whatever the case, confession is the first step. So I call you, church, to confess and deal with God. Let Jesus handle your sin. Amen.